You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 133. And I'm the Warrior Priest out of Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, so very much for your time and attention today. It is the week after Thanksgiving, November 30th, 2022. And before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to say thank you again to everyone who listened to the podcast this year. I got my Spotify numbers this morning and I was surprised and shocked at the increase in downloads and shares where I ended up ranking on Spotify's list of podcasts within my genre of society and culture. Maybe next week I'll get those numbers for you printed up. I know I published them to Spotify or to Instagram to my stories, but I will read them on the show next week to let you know also where things are with the podcast. So thank you for listening. Thank you for all of your feedback. I truly appreciate it, especially right now when our family is going through so much stress and anxiety regarding my 12-year-old. As I had mentioned, I think before he had collapsed several weeks ago, blacked out, had seizures. We took him to the ER after the second blackout and the second set of seizures. Nothing was found at that time and he did not recover. He still has not recovered. He has no energy. He can do 15 to 20 minutes of activity and then he has to sleep for an hour or two at a time. So this past Monday, we took him to the children's hospital for more tests, more thorough examinations, meeting with neurology and other specialists, and still no results, nothing that indicates why this is happening to him. So more tests this coming week, longer studies that are 12 hours in length, and it is exhausting, emotionally exhausting, physically exhausting. The, what was it? We took him to the ER again two weeks, or last week we took him to the ER again, and he was there until 3.30 in the morning, and as a consequence, or was this, that was this past week actually, yes, it was this past week, I apologize, it all blends together for me now. Uh, We haven't been sleeping, and of course we have four other children on top of my 12-year-old in and around him, so we have them to take care of. I have the two gyms that I teach and train at, I have the congregation that I am responsible for as their pastor, podcasting, articles that I'm paid to write, podcasts I am paid to produce. I have a book contract, I have a new book that I'm writing that I haven't even started yet. Um, I've started writing and publishing poetry and art again which I'll get into possibly on this episode. My wife has her own business. She teaches piano and voice. She also produces and sells creams and lotions, uh, CBD in particular, along with other concoctions. We call her the Bruja, which in Spanish means witch. And because of our other responsibilities as leaders in the community, as entrepreneurs and business people, as parents, Our responsibilities in and of themselves are demanding upon us on a regular basis, as I'm sure all of you understand within your own vocations and the responsibilities and burdens that come with those vocations. And so adding to it a child who is sick and we cannot diagnose the root, the cause of his illness, 
it is, like I said, taxing, exhausting emotionally, physically, intellectually. And of course, then as a consequence, I got sick. My wife got sick. My 16-year-old daughter got sick. And if you hear that noise in the background, it's because we got over 12 inches of snow yesterday and the plows are here. So I apologize for that, but it has to happen so that we can actually get out of our driveway and out of the parking lot. <clears throat> but the blessing is our family cares so deeply for each other. Our children care for and take care of each other that when one is sick, all of us suffer. That our love for each other is unconditional and unyielding, unlimited. There is no measure to the love that we as a family have for each other. And I pray that you have that same unconditional love and support in your own family for each other. Because at times like these, when we suffer for each other and we suffer because of each other, all we have to lean on are each other. I appreciate the prayers I do, and I appreciate the encouragement, and I appreciate all of you checking in with us and asking how Hosea is doing, how we are doing. But in the quiet hours of the night at two o'clock in the morning when you're at the ER, all you have is each other. All you have is family. And at rock bottom, that is, for us anyways, the most important relationship. And the very definition of success, both in the present and for the future, is that our children, as they mature, as they grow up, as they become adults, that they still want to be around us. They still enjoy and appreciate our company. For us, that is the, de the definition of success. And it is something then that we work on every single day. And if anything else then, during this time of struggle for all of us, it is something that we have found comfort in. Our faith and that we are taking care of each other, that we love and respect each other, and that we receive each other and treat each other as a gift in spite of the petty squabbles and the picking at each other that happens in any family. That being said, again, thank you for your support and your encouragement as we go through this time, this season of struggle with our child. And we truly appreciate most of all that you pray that there might be a diagnosis and a prognosis for him. Because the only thing more terrifying for a parent than a child being ill is not knowing why that child is ill. You are powerless. There is, there is nothing that you can do in that moment because you don't know what's wrong with them. You don't know why they are afflicted. You don't know why they struggle. You don't know why they are suffering. All you can do is help them be comfortable and do your best to carry them and to carry the burden of their affliction on your own shoulders as a parent. But the not knowing, I don't care if you're a parent, if you're a spouse, whatever you are committed to, whatever you are passionate about, whatever you love more than anything else, when you have that moment of revelation, when you know, when you realize that you have no control, you are powerless over the situation, that is truly terrifying. And it is a reminder that we don't really have control ever over anything. I know the Stoics say that, you know, Epictetus said that we don't have control over outside events, only in how we react to them. And to a certain extent, that is true. But to have that driven home so bluntly, so jarringly, 
that the illusion of control is ripped away from you in those moments, even self-control threatens to slip through your grasps. And it is a profound moment for anyone when it is revealed that the control that you thought you had, you don't. You have a tenuous grasp on reality at best, and you don't really understand anything. As much as we are addicted to information in the postmodern era, as much as we have abandoned wonder and mystery for information, I would argue that this is at root what has led to the, the enslavement of our souls. Because knowing information is not the same as appreciating the mystery of life, of reality itself. And so we believe falsely, I think, that we have control because we have knowledge, as if information allows us to control and manipulate reality. Objective reality is outside of our control. It resists our grasps. It is, in my opinion, like trying to move a mountain with your bare hands. It is an impossibility. And I think that when we accept that we do not have control over reality, objective reality, that we can define it all we want. We can measure it with a telescope or a microscope. We can define it in a dictionary. We can write about it. We can paint it. We can sing about it. We can demand that it conform and submit to our wills. In the end, that is a fool's errand. Because objective reality does not conform to our will, but rather we are to conform our will, our choices, to objective reality. And the fact of the matter is when someone is sick and they are undiagnosed and they continue to suffer and struggle, objective reality does not care that you have information or that you need more information. Yes, it is helpful, especially in the diagnosis and the prognosis of an affliction, a disease, an illness. Of course, information is important. Where does it originate? Why is this happening? How can we treat this? Is there a treatment for it? What can we do? This requires knowledge. It requires information. This is important. But in the big picture, to me, that's little picture stuff. In the big picture, why we get sick, we don't know. Why some people can recover from different diseases and others cannot, we don't know. I've learned so much about epilepsy the past three weeks. Primarily, we don't know what causes epilepsy. We don't actually know how to treat epilepsy. We're just throwing darts at the dartboard hoping that something hits the bullseye. And so when someone has grand mal seizures, real true seizures, neurologists don't really know why. Unless there is something like blunt force head trauma, something that you can point to objectively and say, this is what caused this to happen. When a child develops epilepsy or seizures, they don't know why. They have educated guesses, but they don't know objectively, ultimately, why. And so they can treat the epilepsy 
as best they can to halt the seizures. But that's all they can do. They can't cure epilepsy because they don't know what causes epilepsy. And I think we get so bogged down in the details, the information, the knowledge that we can acquire, that we lose the big picture. That objective reality is not defined by our choice. It is not malleable to our will. What we want doesn't matter in the big picture. We are receivers. We are passive for the most part. And when we act, when we take agency over our lives, what we are really doing is attempting to navigate reality to the best of our abilities in the moment with the information and the knowledge we have based on study, based on experience, based on the word of others. And that's why I wanted to go back to Miyamoto Musashi's Book of Five Rings this week because I think at root this is what Musashi is attempting to express in the book. There is an objective reality and we are tasked with conforming our lives to the natural world, to natural law as it's called, or it used to be called. You see, postmodernity is a rebellion against, a revolt against objective reality. It is a denial of natural law, which is why we are so miserable today. We are so diseased mentally and physically today. Why you see so many people who have no soul today. Materialism has led us to the brink of annihilation. And those who are capitalizing on this refer to us as non-essential workers, as useless human beings, as one person from the World Economic Forum referred to us as. It is because we are in flight from objective reality. We refuse to live according to natural law, and so we live by lies, to quote Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We live by lies because messy freedom is not preferable to comfortable lies. And that's why I think so many of us who reject modernity to a greater and lesser degree have found solace and comfort in the pre-moderns, especially those of a particular class of people. Not just warriors, but artisans, poets, musicians, storytellers, healers, builders, craftsmen. These people, these pre-moderns, they sought to conform their will to objective reality in what they did. Within their vocations, they asked, how can I build this house? How can I write this poem? How can I fight this fight within the rules of this game called reality? So I want to pick up in chapter one of the book of the five rings. This is the book of ground. And I think within the context of what I'm about to read, he'll explain which, why each chapter is named after one of the elements. So this is the book of ground chapter one. And I apologize again for my phlegmy chest today, but again, I'm sick and I've got my my electrolytes here. I'm doing my best. So please, I apologize for clearing my throat. I know it's annoying, but there's nothing I can do about it. Comparing the way of the carpenter to strategy. The comparison with carpentry is through the connection with houses. 
houses of the nobility, houses of warriors, the four houses, ruin of houses, thriving of houses, the style of the house, the tradition of the house, and the name of the house. People used to name their houses. They would name their farms, their estates. We don't do that anymore, and I think we should. And the reason I say that is because when we name something, at least again in pre-modern times, the naming of something was also how you gave it definition in a sense of, of place and of time. You named your animals, you named your children, you named rocks and trees, you named mountains and rivers, you named things. Because on the one hand, it gave you a sense of time and place, it gave definition to the world. But on the other hand, it also gave you control over that thing. And again, objectively, no, it didn't. <laughs> but subjectively, it made us feel more comfortable with this sense of being out of control in a world that was often hostile towards people, or at least mysterious. So in the Bible, for example, in the Old Testament, or the scriptures, Moses wants to know God's name because he wants control over God. He wants to be able to define God on his own terms. So God says to Moses, I will be who I will be, meaning you will know me by my actions, but you will not be allowed to define me and confine me within your own human definitions of deity. So we name our pets, for example, to give us a sense of ownership over them, and then we project onto them human emotions and feelings. It gives us a sense of control over a world in which we often feel helpless, powerless, out of control. It establishes, again, not only a sense of time and place and purpose and meaning, but on the other side, a sense of control. So we name our houses even. Why? Because this is where we live. This is our place in the world. When we're gone, the name remains. Our family name remains on our children. Our farm name remains above the front gates. We remember our pets fondly by their name. When I was five, we received a great Dane. And this I've talked about before. She was the first love of my life, my great Dane. Her name was Lady. And she was a lady. And she was my best friend because I was an only child. And we lived out in the country. So my dog was literally my best friend. We did everything together. We went everywhere together. We slept in, I let her sleep in my bed with me. <laughs> she would sit on the couch with me and watch cartoons on Saturday mornings. I would share my food with her, much to the chagrin of my parents. We did everything together. And the dog, for her part, lived or died by me. She would listen to my mom and dad because she had to. They fed her. <laughs> they put her outside when she had to go to the bathroom. But every day when I got off the bus, and we lived on this farm, we rented this farm, and the driveway to the farm was a block long. I'm not exaggerating. It was a block long driveway. She would break through the screen door. She would hit the latch to the screen door with her face at a full gallop when she heard the bus pull up at the end of the driveway. And by the time I got off the bus, she was already halfway down the driveway at a full gallop. And she would do that every day. She would wait for me every day looking for that bus to come down the road. And so to this day, I still have her dog tag because she died of leukemia because large breeds tend to die from cancers like that. And to this day then, 
I still mourn her death. And she died when I was mm, eight or nine, because we didn't get her as a puppy. She was given to us by another family. They had to move. They had really neglected and abused her. They couldn't really keep her where they were at. They lived in the city. She had no yard. So they kept her in a room in their house most of the time. So for us, you know, for her coming to us as a family living out in the country, it was a liberation. And that kind of love is unlimited. It doesn't, it doesn't define itself by time and place. It transcends time and place, right? I love my grandma Riley. She's been dead many, many years now. She died when I was in college over 20 plus years ago. And yet to this day, I remember her fondly. I'm nostalgic for her. I look forward to seeing her in the resurrection. My love for my grandmother and her love for me, her favorite grandchild, transcends time and place. Her name was Margaret, and I can describe every feature about her still to this day. Because there's something about love and there's something about the naming of the beloved and the being named by the beloved that is more than just hey, this gives me a sense of place and meaning and time. But rather, it's to let you know that in the darkest moments, in the difficult times, when we are afflicted, when we are suffering, when we struggle with dis-ease and illness, no matter how bad things get, these people and these moments anchor us in time and place and say to us, you are more than just a consumer. You are more than a commodity. You are a person. And not only are you just a person, you are more than blood and tissue and snot and two feet and two hands. You are more than the sum of your physical or emotional or intellectual parts. There is something transcendent at work here in and around you that we call love. And love is an objective metaphysical principle. Just as the word home is an objective metaphysical principle, a house is built with materials, physical materials. That's what the word material means. That's a house. But a home is transcendent reality. It is objectively bigger than and points to something greater than ourselves, something more than just drywall and plaster and nails and wood. So naming the house, naming reality through poetry and music and art, for example, is where physical reality and the soul come together and intersect and express something in metaphor that is inexpressible otherwise. This is why music as poetry set to sound, this is why poetry for myself is so vital to my overall health and well-being and why when I pushed it away and ignored it for so long and then came back to it in October, I wrote every day, all day. I would be in the middle of conversations with people, open my phone and start writing in notes and saying, excuse me, I got to get this down before I forget. The poems and the music that have started to flow out of me again is like the dam bursting open and I can't stop because I have to define with words what my soul experiences. And I have to put physical reality within the context of the greater truth that I experience as an individual. And in this way, I set myself free 
from the anxieties and the pressures of the moment. And so rather than sit alone and struggle and suffer in silence over my son, for example, I write it out, I express the pain and the longing of my soul. I blow out the pipes and I use the words that I have at my disposal to the best of my abilities. And then I publish those for others who may be struggling to say to them, you're not alone. And that's why I encourage everyone to do something everyday creative, to make something and put it out in the world. I was just saying this to my 10-year-old the other day. I was explaining to him that rather than listen to podcasts and watch videos of other people building things with Legos, because he loves Legos, he loves creating structures with Legos, he watches stop animation videos on Legos so that he can do that himself. I explained to him that every time he builds something with his Legos, that is the first time anyone in the world in history has ever created that. Of all of the people who have ever played with Legos, and of all of the creations that all of us have formulated and manufactured when we played with Legos, he is the only person who has ever done that in that way. And that, that is why that is unique, and that is why that is a special creation. And that every time he does that, he is putting something into the world that didn't exist before he made it. And that there's something powerful and profound in that. And so I don't care if you think that you're good or bad at writing or singing or sculpting or building or crafting anything. If you are doing it honestly, then it is true. And if it is true, it is a wonder. And it is worthy of, of respect. And even if I subjectively don't like it, I objectively can appreciate and love and be grateful for the fact that you made something that didn't exist before and that that thing is now in the world. And that's, to me, a profound truth and the real reason that we're put on earth in the beginning, in the first place. And that when we fall into the ditch of regurgitation and simply eating, consuming, buying, and selling when we watch what other people do and do nothing with that, when we read and learn about what other people have invented and then we don't use that to inspire us to invent something, when we don't express ourselves in such a way that we live up to, for example, Da Vinci, who said that all children are born artists. We are all artists. And it is adults who beat that out of us. So to quote Nietzsche, to, to recover that childlike sense of seriousness when at play. That, to me, is what poetry is. That is, to me, what drawing and painting is, is to literally recover my maturity, to rediscover the, the seriousness of a child at play so that when I write my poems, I'm not thinking about whether you, the reader, will like them or not. What I'm doing is I'm expressing in this way something that's occurring inside of me that I have to get out. Otherwise, it's like termites that eat away at the foundation of my emotions and my intellect and my very being. And so when you name a house, for example, when you name your, your pet, when you name your beloved and you remember them fondly, even after they've been buried and they've been in the ground for more than two or three decades, what you are doing is expressing a profound truth, a universal objective truth. 
that you're not here to simply buy and sell, to consume and to regurgitate and to passively accept what others have done and then punch your ticket. But that God created all of us as artists and that we are every day free to create something new that has not ever existed in the world before. That's why every time I roll in jiu-jitsu, for example, I am doing something that no other person has ever done before in the history of jiu-jitsu or in the history of martial arts. Because it's me who's doing that. And maybe physically, I resemble others who are doing the same techniques that I am doing. But it's my body, and my body is unique to me and me alone, and no one has ever been given my body. And no one has my mind or my soul or my heart. No one else has my personality or my character. Therefore, every single time I step on the mat, I'm going to create something that has never existed before in the history of the world. That's what art is. And every single person I train with is doing the same. So when you walk into a gym, for example, and you see the chaos and the violence and the sweat and the noise of jujitsu, look deeper. See the big picture. That there are artists here and that they are worthy of your honor and your respect because they are doing something in that moment, whether they are aware of it or not. They are doing something that has never occurred ever and it will never occur again. That's art. In, in the small picture, art is what you hang on the wall. It's what you eat. It's what you can appreciate in the moment. But that's not the profound truth about art. Art is in the creating. It's not in the hanging or the selling. It's not in the eating or the reading of it. It's not in the hearing of it. It's in the creating, in the moment. And in every moment that you are engaged in this art, this artistic expression of your soul, you are putting something new into the world that is born out of passion and love and zeal because you are communicating something that is true. And it is true because it is coming out of the very thing that gives you life, your soul. And without that, you are not a person. You are not truly living. Without that, you are not being your full self, fully human. And so to find that expression, to find that, that place, that time, those people, that moment to create something that didn't exist before and will never exist again, that's a gift. And many people have rejected that gift now. And that's why they live a soulless, solitary, lonely, degenerate existence. They can't even appreciate art for art's sake anymore. When was the last time you heard a poet? Just on TV, in public. Maybe you went to a reading, but when was the last time you ever saw a poet celebrated? When I was growing up, Maya Angelou was like the poet laureate of America. She showed up everywhere reading her poems. And I love some of her poems, and there's the rest that I don't really care for. But I appreciated the fact that we actually had public intellectuals, we had public artists and poets, we had public writers that we would turn to at certain momentous events in the public's life. And we would say to them, can you please express the soul of America? Can you express the soul of the people of this country? 
and they would do that to the best of their abilities as artists. And in that moment, even as a child, I recognized this is special. This isn't something you see every day, so pay attention. And what do we see nowadays? We don't see it. And the art that is celebrated to me, in my opinion, subjectively speaking, is degenerate. It's revolting because it's nihilistic. It's fatalistic. It expresses nothing except hopelessness. And that's not art. Art is not the expression of hopelessness. Art is the expression of hopelessness within the moment of creating something that gives you hope. It gives voice and sound and picture to that hopelessness so that you can look at it and say, this is what my hopelessness feels like. This is what it looks like. This is my frustration. And sometimes that comes out as a scream. Sometimes it comes out as a whimper. Sometimes it comes out as a painting of just a person sitting alone in a dark room or a photograph of someone throwing themselves off a bridge. But sometimes it comes out as a desperate need to be surrounded by people, to be recognized, to be named, to be acknowledged, to be told, you matter, you are loved, we see you. That's art. And when you lose that, you lose soul. And when you lose that as a public, you lose your soul as a public. That's why I believe that the people of the United States have lost their soul. Because we no longer look to those artists, those musicians, those poets, those writers to give expression to the longing, to the hope, to the desperation, to the anger, to the love of our soul, this metaphysical principle that transcends subject of reality. All we care about now is information. We've abandoned wonder and mystery. And as a consequence, we are starved in our souls. And this has made us fatalists and nihilists. Believe the science? No. Believe the artist. Because their words speak truth. Their images, their sculptures, their paintings, their carvings, they communicate the truth of the soul in that moment. So whether you subjectively like the poetry, agree with the message, appreciate the painting, that's immaterial. Appreciate the artist. Appreciate what they had to go through to express that on canvas or on paper or in music. Appreciate what they had to go through, what they had to suffer, what they had to live to be given those words to communicate a truth, the truth of the human condition in such a way that you can go, I get it. Okay, I get it. I don't like it, but I get it. Or maybe it touches you so deeply, so profoundly that it affects you permanently. That's a gift because it helps give you a sense of time and place. It gives you meaning. It helps define your identity as a person in relation to other people. And without that, you're just an atom, just this nebulous, plasmic thing floating through the world, going from one place to another place with no purpose. <laughs> I got all that from the word house. Okay. I guess I did have something to say today. And so back to the book, the carpenter uses a master plan of the building 
and the way of strategy is similar in that there is a plan of campaign. Draw up plans. Have a purpose. Have a goal. Know what you're going to do and when you're going to do it and how you're going to accomplish your goal. So if you want to learn the craft of war, ponder over this book. The teacher is as a needle. The disciple is as thread. You must practice constantly. The thing about drawing, for example, is that it's a muscle. And if you stop drawing, the muscle atrophies, just like if you stopped exercising, your physical muscles atrophy. So when I begin to draw again, it's not good. According to my standards, it's not good. But the more I practice, the more I draw, the more I write my poetry, the better, in my opinion, it becomes. Because I'm exercising that muscle, it's getting stronger, more supple, more flexible. And just like going to the gym and training, because I've been sick, my mind has been disoriented the last several days. I haven't been able to write. And emotionally then today, I am upset and I am discombobulated. Let's use that word. I need to write. I need to exercise the muscle. I need to get the things that are going on inside of me out of me. But because I'm ill, I'm not physically or mentally capable of doing that. And then my frustration mounts and I have to find ways to relax myself because getting frustrated, becoming more anxious, stressing out, all that, that, that serotonin being released, all the insulin, all everything happening in the cortisol levels going up, it's just going to make me sicker. So I need art, but my art will kill me. <laughs> in the end, that's the dichotomy of art is that you use it to define life and yet it can also take your life. And so I've had to adapt in the moment. I've had to accept my weakness and accept that I'm not capable of, of writing to the level, to the standard of which I hold myself. So I have to simplify. And so I am drawing and I am painting on my iPad. I've abandoned my, my artistic snobbery and I have taken to drawing and painting on my iPad and using different apps and programs to accomplish my goals. It's not ideal, but where I'm at now with my life and my schedule and where things stand, it is the best that I can do. And it is how I've chosen to express myself, good, bad, or otherwise. But again, it's art and it's how I choose to express myself. It's how I can express myself. And whether you judge it subjectively to be lesser than a canvas on a wall, a sculpture on a mantle, whatever it might be, I need to create. I need to put something out into the world that didn't exist before. It's liberating for me. It takes the weight off my conscience so that I can show up as a father for my child in such a way that I can carry his burden that I can carry him physically and do so in such a way that I don't burden him with my worry and my anxiety and my terror, but that I can show up for him as his father and do what I am called upon by him to do in the moment and not add to his burden. And so I take that weight that I carry and I put it down in words 
and I put it down on the page. I put it down on the screen, in the case of my iPad, with the stylus, with my fingers, and I express myself. And I just let it happen. And I think that's another thing. I want to go on a tangent for a second with this, which not this whole show is a tangent, right? When I started writing again, poetry, it, it happened when I was in Mexico, as always happens when I go to my spiritual home and I'm with my spiritual family, my soul opens back up again. God opens me back up again to see the artistry of the world of all of creation and the words and the images pour out of me. And I can't stop it. It's kind of scary, actually. I almost feel like I'm going to lose myself. And so coming back, it just, I just chose to leave that channel open and it just kept pouring out and it continues to pour out. And like I say, the only thing that has interrupted that flow is this sickness that I'm suffering through currently. But when I started to then publish my poetry, people would text and say, who wrote this? This is amazing. I love this. Who wrote this? And I said, I did. And I said, well, I didn't know you could write poetry. Well, I can. And then after they found out it was me and not someone famous, they stopped asking, they stopped reposting, they stopped appreciating the poetry because it was just me. Then I started publishing with my poems, my art, little drawings that I would do to accompany my poems. And people would ask, again, who did this? Who drew this? Who painted this? And I said, I did. I used a program on my iPad, several actually, to create digital art to accompany my poems, to express in picture what I'm expressing in words. And once again, same thing happened. When they discovered that the art I was producing wasn't by someone famous, they pulled back. They walked away. As if the name that is attached to the art somehow gives it more value and I despise this about us as people, this slavishness to authority, that if we attach a name or a title to something, it somehow increases the value of that thing. That's nonsense. Again, art can be produced by a four-year-old or a 40-year-old. It can produce, be produced by the rich or the poor, someone who lives in a mansion or someone who lives on a dirt floor. Art is art. And it doesn't matter what name or title is attached to the piece of art. It's either beautiful to you or it's not. It's either of value to you or it is not. But to attribute some sort of value to the art itself because of the name, because it says Van Gogh on it, as if that somehow increases the overall value of the piece of art, is absurd nonsense in my opinion. What gives art its value is when you look at it and it moves you. It communicates truth to you in such a way that you say, I need this. I need to hear this. I need to listen to this. I need to see this because it sets me free. It liberates me from the prison of my own emotions, of the moment. It gives me wings that I can fly and imagine a different world or a different place or a different time or a different reality than the one that I'm conscious of in the moment. Names mean nothing. Titles ultimately mean nothing. What matters is the art itself and the expression of that art. Because whether your name is Van Gogh or Donovan Riley, whether you are Friedrich Nietzsche or some eight-year-old who has 
lived through genocide in your country. The expression of that moment, of that experience, of that event, and how you choose to do that, how it floods out of you in words and pictures. There is a terrible beauty in that. Because in my experience, most great art comes through and as a consequence of suffering and struggle. Not always, but in my experience. And that that grief and that frustration is your soul crying out for a hand to grab it and pull it up off the brink, off the edge, because you're about to fall into the abyss. You're about to be gobbled up by oblivion. Your soul is about to be annihilated. And that's what art is. It is a crying against the dying of the light. And again, I go back to that refrain that without art, I think our souls die. As individuals, our soul withers and dies. As societies, our souls wither and die because art gives expression to what is happening at the very rudimentary, primal level. And so oftentimes when I create, I don't have a plan. I have a theme. I have something that I'm thinking about, something that happened in the moment that I then write down and say, okay, I need to record this. I need to express this because this is affecting me now. And so I developed the plan and the plan is the poetry. The plan is I'm going to draw, I'm going to paint. The goal is simply get it out of me. <laughs> Exercise the demons, give voice to the angels, but get it out so that I can continue with life. And so the way of the warrior is the way of the artist. Because as Musashi says in the Book of the Five Rings, that a true warrior is a fighter, a philosopher, and a poet, an artist. And that to be a true warrior, a holistic warrior, you must know how to fight, you must know how to think, and you must know how to express your soul. And without those three ingredients, you are deficient. You limp along as a warrior. And he would say, you're not a true warrior. So if you think going to the gym and, and sparring all the time makes you a warrior, it doesn't. You go to the gun range, that doesn't make you a warrior. Even if you've gone to war, that doesn't make you a warrior. Formally, yes, you actually went to war. You are a warrior, formally speaking, on paper. But without the philosophy, without the art, you are deficient. All three are necessary. And you must practice all three of these constantly. And that's why I say, I pushed away art and music. I pushed away creating for a long time. I shut that part of my life down. It wasn't really a conscious decision. It just sort of happened. Other things came along that demanded my attention, and before I knew it, I had forgotten. I think that's probably one of the reasons I created this podcast and, and my other podcast, is because I needed to express myself. And I had forgotten where 
and, and why I expressed myself in the first place. I've been writing poetry since I was a little boy, five, six years old. I have drawn and painted and sculpted since I was old enough to walk. I went to school on an art and music scholarship. I've toured with bands all across the country, jazz, concert, marching, rock, blues, painted, printmaking, sculpting, photography, poetry, music. That was my life from the time I was old enough to walk until I got out of college. But up until recently, I never felt like I was mature enough to really appreciate what I was doing and why I was doing it. And I think that's true for all of us, is that there are seasons in our life that we do things and we're not quite sure why we're doing them. We just need to do them or want to do them. But as we mature, as we are seasoned by experience, with that comes understanding, that, that knowledge that I talked about earlier, that informs you that, yes, what you are doing is art and this is why you are doing it. So keep doing it. It's medicine for the soul. And, God willing, it's medicine for other people's souls as well. Last night I got a text from one of my teammates, John. So shout out to John. Congratulations on your blue belt promotion. It is well deserved. No doubt about it. But he just texted to thank me because when he first came to the gym, his very first night, uh, my coach asked me to train with him because I used to do that before I became this snobbish uppity purple belt. <laughs> It's one of the great joys, actually, for me as a martial artist is that when people come into the gym, I as a coach and instructor, I as a teammate, can work with them and encourage them to come back. Because in my opinion, it's not enough to just teach people technique. It's not enough to say, keep coming back. It gets, it gets better. To me, being a teammate, being a coach and instructor, I have this opportunity to give you something, to invite you into this artist's commune, so to speak, in which you will be able to express your soul and you will be able to exercise your demons, express that pollution that is toxic, that limits you and hedges you in and, and makes the rest of your life lesser than and so if I can not only communicate to you the technique, but also a sense of brotherhood and camaraderie, fellowship, excitement and joy and gratitude, not just for the technique, not just for what we're doing, but for you as a person to say, I want you to come back because I want you to get from jujitsu what jujitsu has given to me. So how can I do that? Well, it's not only helping you with the technique, it's embracing you. And bringing you in and saying, you are my brother now. Because we rolled it together. We shared something intimate with each other. And as I've talked about on the show before, I don't have any more intimate relationships outside of my marriage than I do with those that I train with in Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu. My Muay Thai coach and teammate. My brothers in Jiu Jitsu. My coach. There's no more intimate relationships that I enjoy than I enjoy with them. That's why I stay. And so when someone says, 
why do you care so much about him? Why does it matter so much that you help him? And the answer is because we rolled together. And if you've ever rolled, you know what I mean. And if you haven't, you don't. It's just that simple. It's intimacy. It's sharing something. It is opening up yourself to the other person in that moment and you are unfiltered completely. You're just wide open and they, they see you for who you are, warts and all. And so to John on your promotion, congratulations. It is well-earned and well-deserved and it was a privilege and it is a gift for me that I got to be your first training partner and that I got to roll with you last Wednesday and that we continue to do this with each other to this day because you make me better. You make me a better man, a better teammate, a better coach, a better artist. And you inspire me and you motivate me to not fail, to not take what I have for granted and to not treat this beautiful art that I get to participate in as something lesser than. Because there is a certain truth, maybe a bigger truth, to the statement that jujitsu is life. It's like Musashi says that, you know, once you see the way broadly, you see the way in everything. Well, once you learn jujitsu, you see the principles of jujitsu everywhere. And you can apply those principles on the mat and off. Being comfortable in uncomfortable situations, remaining calm and relaxed when everything around you is chaotic and critical. Learning how to de-escalate violence and conflict. How to be compassionate and grateful and to share what you have with others and not to hoard it or covet it selfishly as if it's your property. Because as I've talked about before also, whenever I start thinking of jujitsu and Muay Thai as mine, I'm teaching you my technique. Well, when you don't execute it to my standard, you've not failed. You, you've not failed to execute on the technique. You failed me. You've insulted me personally because it's my technique, my Muay Thai, my jujitsu. That's the ego. That's little boy shit. That's me judging myself based on how well or how poorly you do what I tell you. Well, then it's not teaching, it's obedience training. Instead, it is jujitsu. It is Muay Thai. And I am simply teaching you what others have taught me. And they were taught by their teachers and their teachers by their teachers, going back into the mists of history. And I'm just grateful I get to be a part of this. All of these great artists, like Musashi, like Maeda, like Hicks and Gracie, all of these people who passed on their knowledge, who gave freely of their experience and their time, who opened themselves up to strangers to say to them, I want to give you life. I want to give you the jujitsu. I get to be a part of that. And so whether I want to be in the gym or not, some nights, whether I'm grateful to be there or not some nights, whether I force myself to step onto the mat some days, regardless, it's a privilege. And I'm grateful that I get to live in that house and be a part of that great lineage of artists and warriors who gave freely of themselves so that I could do that, so that you could do that. And we get to be a part of that. 
So why would you hoard that? Why would you covet that selfishly? Why would you engage in that little boy bullshit and treat others like it's a cult, like it's some sort of mystery religion? And if you don't know the right hand gesture or you don't know the secret number or knock, you're not allowed into it. So come up with a plan. Know where you're going. Develop that plan and then go on that campaign. If you want to learn the craft of war, ponder over this book, the Book of the Five Rings. And the teacher is the needle, the disciple is the thread. That's all I'm doing as a teacher, teaching you how to thread the needle. But you must practice constantly. Not just the technique, but as a teacher, I must practice teaching constantly. Because that also is a muscle. Teaching also is an art. It's a discipline. It's a science. Or to put it in Musashi's words, I have to learn how to fight and I have to train in fighting constantly. I have to learn how to be a philosopher and I have to practice philosophy constantly. I have to learn how to be a poet, an artist, and I have to practice my art constantly. Then I, and then and only then according to Musashi, can you actually call yourself a warrior? So just being able to draw a sword and cut someone down doesn't make you a warrior. Being able to contemplate the big picture, objective reality, natural law, the truth, it doesn't make you a warrior. Being able to write poetry or paint a picture or sing a song, that doesn't make you a warrior. But to take all three, actually I did this yesterday. I actually, I, I painted, drew a picture of uh, jujitsu calling it art in motion number one. So I took my knowledge about jujitsu, about fighting, and I took the philosophy of jujitsu and the artistry, and I combined all three and I made this picture called jujitsu, the art of motion. So yeah, actually by definition, that would, that's, yeah, that's what a warrior does. But then also when I step on the mat, I need to take that philosophy and I need to take that art and I need to focus it into the fighting aspect of being a warrior. And then, of course, likewise with philosophy. I take what I've learned in Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu. I take what I have done over here expressing myself in my art. Combine it all together to produce this philosophy that is practical. That you can put into practice immediately like the Stoics talk about. And I think going back, I kind of tangent it off and then I didn't finish my thought, I don't think. So I'll wrap up that previous thought with, uh, yeah, that's my problem. I'm a pattern recognition guy, so I'm all over the place. Squirrel. But that once I started producing poetry and people said, who wrote this? And I started producing art and people said, who did this? And how, because I'm not famous and I don't have a famous name or a title, people were like, oh yeah, that's nice. In the present tense, especially because of social media, we have all been categorized. We have all been commodified. We have all been put in our little boxes. And so this is what I, I'm the jujitsu guy. I get this all the time. Hey, you're the jujitsu pastor. I also do Muay Thai. I'm an MMA. I'm a mixed martial artist. Well, yeah, but you do jujitsu. I'm like, yes, but I do Muay Thai. Like Muay Thai is just as important to me as jujitsu. I'm not just a jujitsu practitioner. I'm a mixed martial artist, which also according to Musashi is what makes a warrior. People do not want to allow other people out of their lane. So when I started to write poetry, I didn't know you wrote poetry. Well, I do. I just didn't do it for a while and now I'm back at it again. Oh, I didn't know that you could draw. Well, I went, 
I was in an art program. I went to school on an art scholarship. I just haven't done it for a while. Oh, I didn't know you could preach. And I didn't know that you could philosophize. And I didn't know that you did Muay Thai. And I didn't know you did all these other things. Why can't I? Why can't I merge out of my lane? Why can't I do other things? Why can't I be good? Why can't I have the ability and the gifts and the talents to do other things? Why can I only do what you have categorized me as? Because again, that is limiting and therefore dehumanizing. What Musashi is saying to all us pre-moderns is stop getting siloed. Stop allowing yourself to be categorized and put in different boxes. You are more than just the sum of one thing. I'm not just a jujitsu fighter. I'm a Muay Thai practitioner. But I'm not just a Muay Thai practitioner. I'm a poet. I'm not just, not just a poet. I'm a musician. And not just a musician, but a preacher. And not just a preacher, but a teacher. And not just a teacher, but a father. And not just a father, but a husband. And not just a husband, but an instructor. I'm all of these things. And all of these things are what make Donovan, Donovan. And when you try to limit me and force me to stay inside this box that you have built for me, you limit me and therefore you dehumanize me. You turn me into an object to be manipulated and controlled. But once we abandon those categories and those boxes that we, we, Im, we implement those things and we impose those things on other people, and rather than accept you as a person and say, okay, who are you? Oh, you're an artist. Great. What else? Oh, you're a chef. Great. What else? Oh, you're a wife. Great. What else? Oh, you're a sister. What else? What is happening is we get engorged on the fullness of the other person and all of their gifts and skills and abilities. And we can appreciate them more. We can actually fall in love with them even more deeply and profoundly because there's so much more to them than what we see and what we interpret for ourselves as being important and relevant. And so it's not about conforming to other people or even being a nonconformist, actually, because that's just conformity in the other direction. Instead, what we can do is lean into our gifts and our abilities and share them with others, not covet them, not try to guard them and hide them. I mean, yes, when I create my art, I put my name on it so other people can't steal it and take credit for it because I created that. That's my art. It is my art. But it's just, it's bigger than that. Saying it's my art is being a slave to the moment. What matters is that I created something and I published it for the world. And whether people like it or don't like it, that's not the point. I write it for myself as an expression of my soul. And I put it out there so that you can read it or look at it or hear it. And if it touches your soul, if it intersects with your soul and it helps you express yourself and it gives you the wings to fly and to imagine a, a world full of possibilities and hope. And it motivates you or inspires you to walk out of the house and do something different today, to change to put something into the world yourself that wasn't there previously. I think that's awesome. Because, you know, there's this guy, he's a Colombian. He was a philosopher and a poet and a writer, Nicholas um, Gomez uh, Davila. He wrote that conformism and nonconformism are symmetrical expressions of a lack of originality. 
I love that. Conformity, lack of originality. Nonconformity, lack of originality because you're just conforming to all the other nonconformists. Just be yourself. Don't worry about whether people are going to judge you or not. Just be yourself and express yourself. If people judge you, okay. Is their judgment valid or invalid? Make your art. Express yourself. Make something that wasn't there before and that will never be there again. Cook, bake, build, construct, form, express, however you get your art out of your soul and put it out there for others. I don't think there's anything better that you could do to contribute to the betterment of yourself and society as a whole. So we put aside conformism. We put aside nonconformism. We recognize these two ditches. And instead, we walk the path, the way, as Musashi calls it. And we see that the world is artistry because it was created by an artist's hand. And we were created by that same artist's hand to be artists. And that it's very simple as artists to neglect this gift, to pervert and abuse the world in such a way that it becomes an expression of our own nihilistic, soulless tendencies. Or, contrarily, we can create something beautiful and put it out in the world and inspire others, like my friend John, who inspires me with his art, to wake up every morning, to put that cup of coffee down next to me, to put on my favorite hip-hop playlist of my favorite independent rappers, and just start writing, just expressing the thoughts of my soul, good, bad, or otherwise. And if I can do that first thing in the morning to express my gratitude for myself, for my wife, for my children, for just being alive, and for all of you, to me, my whole day is good from then on, no matter what happens, good, bad, or otherwise. I started on the right foot. I started on the path. And so I encourage you, especially in this season where we're coming to the end of the year. Some of us are preparing for Christmas, all of the expectations that come with Christmas. Maybe this year, instead of buying gifts, maybe make something and give that to people. It doesn't matter what it is. When my children draw me a Christmas card, th there's nothing on earth that you could, you couldn't put a price on that. It's the most valuable thing that I own and will ever own because in that moment, my 10-year-old gave me something and he'll never make that again and he'll never be that 10-year-old again. And so when I look back at the things that he gave me when he was four and I still have them, it takes me back to that moment. When I look at my dog's dog tag that I got when she died, lady, it takes me back to when I was five and the world was new and full of wonder and mystery and my great Dane, my best friend, shared that with me. And we had great adventures and we explored magical places like the barn or the woods. We did that together. Or when I would sit with my grandma on her couch and we would watch the Lawrence Welk show while we drank hot cocoa and ate sugar cookies. And she would be in her yellow bathrobe with her slippers. And I would be in my homemade pajamas, Spider-Man and Captain America. 
comic strip pajamas. And we would just sit there and watch Lawrence walk. Just to have that moment with each other. That's art. That moment is art. And we can never get those moments back. But those moments then, the artistry in that moment, is what fills out and rounds out our souls. And it is what makes us people. It's what makes us human. It gives us a sense of time and place in the world. It attaches us to something greater than ourselves. And ultimately, that is the truth. That is the purpose of life. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this experiment of me expressing my innermost thoughts into a microphone in an office, alone, talking to a microphone which represents all of you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being at the other end of this conversation, this monologue. Thank you for being out there. Thank you for what you do. Thank you. I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.